Okay, we'd like to welcome you back to our current event and weekly Bible study for December 7th, 2008. And sorry about that, let me get my microphone positioned there. And uh, we're going to be continuing this study on the tribe of Dan, and I'm going to be, the uh, first verse is Amos 8, um, 8.11. It says, they that, um, they that swear by the sin of Samaria, and say, Thy God, O Dan, liveth, and the manner of Beersheba liveth, even shall fall, and shall never rise up again. Now, if the God that Dan is in reference to here is the holy God of heaven, why would he say, they shall fall and shall never rise up again? So they that swear by the sin the sin of Samaria, and say, thy God, O Dan, liveth, and the manner of Beersheba liveth, even they shall fall and shall never rise up again. So we can't be dealing with the holy God of Israel, holy God of heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. We can't be dealing with that. What God was Dan serving is what we have to look at here at this point. Okay, And, we're, and there's plenty of proof here to, to, to prove our point here on this. Um, if we go, uh, Judges 13, 2 and 24 says, And there was a certain man in Zorah, of the family of the Danites, meaning the tribe of Dan, the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and bare not. And the woman bare a son and called his name Samson. And the child grew and the Lord blessed him. Okay, this is where we talk about Samson. Now we're going to be talking more about Samson later. Okay. Uh, if we go to Chronicles 2, 13 and 14, and that says, And now I have sent a cunning man, Endued with understanding of Hiram, my father, the son of a woman of the daughters of Dan. And his father was a man of Tyre. Okay, skillful to work in gold and silver and brass and iron and stone and in the timber, in purple and blue and in fine linen and in crimson. Also to grave any manner of graving and to find out every device which shall be put to him with thy cunning man and with the cunning man of my Lord David, thy father. Now, again, this is Hiram. This is in regard to where the Masons talk about Hiram Abith in the Masons. Okay? Well, this is where one of the places he's mentioned in the Bible. And it says, uh, this: he was a cunning man, and do with understanding of Hiram, my father's, the son of a woman, of the daughters of Dan. Okay, so again, just an interesting parallel here. We've got Hiram Abiff being connected with the son of a woman of the daughters of Dan. And Hiram Abiff is so central in the whole Temple Solomon thing that the Masons have such an obsession with. Okay, just, a, just an interesting point there. Okay, so if we go further, the corpus of legends central to the Freemasons, including, of course, the building of Solomon's Temple, derives ultimately from the Old Testament material. Both canonical and apocryphal, as well as from the Judaic and Islamic commentaries upon it. It is worth looking at the most important of these legends, the murder of Hiram Abith, in some detail. The Hiram story is rooted in the context of the Old Testament. It figures in two books, 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles. Uh, that was from a book called The Temple and the Lodge, page 124 by Bajit. That was a quote from that book. And I, I, I believe we went over that a little bit in more in depth last week where we talked about Hiram Abiff and these types of things and Jabalon, Jubalon, and all those guys that 
and how that's related into the Freemasons. Okay, because a lot of this stuff ties together, and I wanted the study on the Antichrist to hopefully cross-confirm um, itself. The Merovingian, this is another quote, Merovingian geographical place names and the personal names were sometimes Jewish. In the 6th century, a brother of King Clothair was named Samson, while the Myron Le Levite was a count, like Levite in the tribe. Sion and Le Levite were Merovingian towns in France. Scholars have even traced the Merovingian Salic law back to the Judaic law. So in other words, we've got a lot of ties in here with this Merovingian bloodline and how they have uh, appearingly plagiarized many of the Jewish names, types, and figures and how they have been obsessed with them and how through the Freemasons they've actually perpetuated that. So if we go further, uh, the Merovingians have a tradition of long hair. And the name Samson among the royal house would indicate the descent from Samson and thus the tribe of Dan. Okay, so um, these Merovingians have this tradition of long hair, just like Samson. Okay? And, um, and the name, actually, Samson itself was also a tradition. So, again, that, they're saying that would indicate their descent from Samson, thus the tribe of Dan, because Samson was actually um, half Danite and half tribe of Judah, and we'll be looking at that in a little bit. So, if we go further, the Merovingian kings were called the long-haired monarchs because they placed great value on their long hair and believed that it gave them strength. But the Bible says that doesn't nature therefore itself teacheth us that it is a shame for a man to have long hair? Whereas on a woman, that is her glory. Okay, and again, I've done a whole study on this with the women um, in regard to to long hair and that. So, uh, if you want to know, just key in the word woman in my search box on my homepage. And I think I've done like four different teachings on that. Not on just long hair, but on what women can do for the Lord and the biblical role of wives. So, the Merovingians, they have this tradition of long hair, also naming themselves Samson. Uh, the Merovingian kings were called long-haired monarchs. Uh, so again, it's just a, lo- a lot of interesting uh, parallels here. Now, I had a guy email me last week and he said, well, and he brought up a good point, and I wanted to bring this up in all fairness to Samson. And he said, well, he said, Samson wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. True. Okay. He said, and if he wrote that at the end of his life, then that would indicate repentance. True. So I want to at least mention that now, in the old Schofield Bible, one of the Bibles that I do have, and I'm not saying go buy an old Schofield, okay, because a lot of the commentaries are not accurate, okay, and I don't want to get you messed up, but um, in the one that, that I've had from times past, I looked in there, and they give dates by when particular books were written. Now, again, I, I don't say you can be absolutely 100% dogmatic about all of these dates, because some of them are guesstimates, but in Ecclesiastes, they have... Um, uh, that written at B.C. 977. And in the time of Solomon's falling away that we talked about in 1 Kings 11, when Solomon turned to idolatry, they're saying that was written in B.C. 992. Now, remember, this is the exact opposite way that we would term things now. Um, the smaller the actual number in B.C. times, the closer that would be to where we're at now, okay? 
the larger the number in BC times, and in this case it was 992 compared to 977, 992 was when Solomon turned to idolatry. That would indicate that it was before he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes by about, let's see here, 15 years, around 15 years. Okay. Again, I don't see how you could be 100% dogmatic because we weren't there back then, but it, it is a pretty strong indicator that he wrote Ecclesiastes after. And I hope he did. I don't want to, I don't want him to go to hell. I mean, I don't want Solomon to go to hell. I hope to see him in heaven. Um, but if he did repent, which uh, hopefully you know we can say that he did, boy, oh boy, you talk about being in the jaws of the lion. I mean, if he got into the whole thing, and we know he did with Moloch, Chemosh, he had, you know, all these wives had turned his heart away. If he was actually able to come away from that and still repent, man, you talk about the grace of God. You talk about that. That's amazing that, that, that he granted him repentance after from going from such a high level to sin, such a low level, and then back up again, realizing his sin. You know, hopefully that's the case. But I wanted to say that in fairness to Solomon, because to not mention that is, is not fair. So let's go further. Uh, Regarding the um, tribe of Dan, uh, we're going to be talking now about the Arcadians and the Spartans and how they're possibly from the tribe of Dan. Now the question remains, how do we know the Spartans were the offspring of the tribe of Dan? You know the Spartans, the, the really, really, really heavy-duty warriors that, that we hear about? Aside from the fact that the Spartans wore long hair as a symbol of their power, like Samson, there was a legend written about the son of Belius the king of the Spartans, in which is given the story of one named Danius, who arrived in Greece with his daughters by ship. According to the legend, his daughters called themselves Danades. They introduced the cult of the mother goddess worship, which became the established religion of the Arcadians and developed over years through the worship of Diana. Hmm. And isn't that funny when we talk about Hiram Abiff, which is, which is into all of this stuff. In the Bible it says, we had just quoted this, it says, um, Hiram, my father, is the son of a woman of the daughters of Dan. Huh, the daughters of Dan. His father was a man of Tyre. And it talks about these daughters that called themselves Danades. And then it says, they introduced the cult of the mother goddess, which became the established religion of the Arcadians, developed over the use in the worship of Diana. The Spartans so loved their king that they called themselves Danans, long before they adopted the name Spartans. Also, in the legend is a record of the arrival of colonists from Palestine. Well, if Dan had migrated out of Palestine, from the northern parts of Mount Palestine, from the Mount Hermon area, Okay, if they had migrated out of that area, well, that's where they would have come from. They would have come from Palestine. Okay, and there's these legends in Spartan lore of colonists arriving from Palestine. And then also this this uh, uh, story of um, that we just talked about, where Danis arrived in Greece with his daughters by ship. Please note the man who headed the expedition was named Danius. He may well have been of the tribe of Dan and thus would have been the progenitor of the ancient Spartans. Now that's from, uh, I believe, J.R. Church on page 120 of, of his book. So again, an interesting parallel there with the Spartans. And the Spartans, you know, they were wicked. 
real wicked. Uh, these were some brutal people. And if Dan had um, fallen into idolatry, like I believe we're going to be able to prove, it's no wonder they were wicked. And the Merovingians, I mean, that's a blasphemous thing. And, and if they had anything to do with the Merovingians, they're as wicked as they get. They're good at hiding their wickedness, but we're talking, you know, by, you know, by a tree's fruit, you're going to know that tree. So let's go further. This is from Holy Blood, Holy Grail, that blasphemous book that talks about, you know, the Merovingian bloodlines and Jesus procreating with, uh, Mary Magdalene and them starting this Merovingian race, which is blasphemy, but that's what it says and teaches. Uh, this is from page 275. In the Greek myth is the legend of King Beli, Belanus, one Danus. So again, this guy called himself Danus, or King Belanus, who arrives in Greece with his daughters, daughters of Dan, by ship. His daughters are said to have introduced the cult of the mother goddess, which became the established cult of the Arcadians. Uh, according to Robert Graves, the Danaeus myth records the arrival of Pelanopius of the colonists from Palestine. Again, another confirmation here. Graves states that King Belanius is in fact a representative of Baal. Belanius, Baal? Okay, now, that's important. Because if this king arrives from Palestine and he calls himself King Belanius being a representative of the false god Baal, or Belial, that's a very important tie-in here, because we're going to look at what was the number one thing going on where Dan settled in the region that they ended up selling. Now, think about this. If they settled in a particular region near the Mount Hermon area in northern Palestine, which is a fact they did, we can prove it biblically, they settled in that region, and they came out of that region, and they were into idolatry. Don't you think they're going to take their false religion with them? So the, the fact that this guy's name was King Belanius, we can associate that with Baal or Belial, that's significant because it ties back into what we're going to find out that was going on in that region. Let's go further. This is, here's another quote. Uh, At that particular time, Arcadia was ruled by Spartans. Uh, the Spartans placed a special magical significance on their long hair, associated with their great strength. There appears to have been a relationship between the Spartans and the Jews. In the Apocrypha, we read, it has been found in writing concerning the Spartans and the Jews that they are brethren and are of the family of Abraham. Well, if they, if they could trace their lineage through Dan, you know, I can see why they would say that. It wasn't, you know, a godly thing we're talking about here, but... They're just talking about this from a lineage standpoint. Here's another quote from a man named Van Buren, page 141 of his book. There are certain facts that suggest that the Celts might have derived from a Jewish tradition from the East. The Celtic body of ecclesiastical and civil knowledge was Druidism. Like the Druid high priest, these were some of the most wicked, wicked uh, priests that the world's ever known. Now, I've done a whole study where we talk a lot about the Druids on Halloween, okay, and what their practice was during that time regarding human sacrifice and these types of things. So if you want to reference that, just key in Halloween in the uh, keyword search box on my homepage. It says, their system can be traced to about 1800 BC. This is the Druids. 
It is recorded in Welsh triads that Hugh Gadam synthesized the wisdom of the ancients for those whom he led from the West, uh, Sumeria and Mesopotamia. In the Psalter of Cashel, it states that the Tuthalia de Danon ruled in Ireland for about two centuries. Now, again, this is in one of their ancient texts. It states that the Tuathia de Danon ruled in Ireland for about two centuries and were highly skilled in architecture and other arts from their long residence in Greece. Okay, Greece, remember? It's appearing as though the Danites, or at least a portion of them, migrated to Greece via Palestine from the Mount Hermon area, probably were driven out of that area, which is where then we get the Spartan race, and at first they called themselves Danans, changed their name to Spartans, and then some of them probably migrated north into Ireland, and this is again where we're getting this whole Merovingian bloodline thing into, into Europe. So it says that they were, they were, uh, they were highly skilled in architecture and other arts from their long residence in Greece. This is where they learned how to do it. The Tuathia de Danon were descendants of Danus, the son of Belius. Bel, Baal, Belial, who was the king that came from Palestine who went with his fifty daughters to Argos, the home of his ancestors. In Irish legends, the Tuathia de Danon, who were considered to be demigods, hmm, were said to have possessed a grail-like vessel. These teachers of wisdom were the founders of the Druidic priesthood. Weird. Druidic priesthood, the most wicked priesthood, which spawned the Celts. When the Romans went to go fight the Celts, and I think, believe the initial battles, I mean, these guys would come out, you know, totally naked. We're talking demon-possessed to the toenails. And they had never really hardly seen anything like these guys. So, again, what was the fruit of, of, of the Druid religion to the Celts? Because the Druid high priest ruled over the Celts. What was the fruit of that religion? Well, basically, demon-possession of their whole nation. Well, what was the source of that demon possession? The Druid high priesthood. Who was the source of that? Most likely the Danites. Or there's a lot of strong indications here. So again, we're just seeing a lot of interesting parallels here. And they were considered demigods. We're going to be looking a little bit more at that later. Um, Genesis 9, 22-25 says, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and told his brethren, this is when Noah got drunk, okay, um, and Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it both upon their shoulders and went backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces went backwards and they saw not their father's nakedness. And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what the younger had done unto him. Hmm. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be unto his brother. Now, why didn't he curse Ham? Well, he had already blessed Ham in the previous verses. Okay, so he couldn't take that blessing back and curse him. So he cursed one of his children, Canaan. This is an interesting portion of scripture because he said he'd awoke from his wine and he knew what his younger son had done unto him. Now, if he had just looked on him, how would he know what had been done unto him? Now, I don't exactly 100% know what happened. None of us do, but it doesn't sound good. Okay, it doesn't sound good at all. 
So, uh, again, that's a whole other study. But then if we go further, um, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the servant of servants shall be unto his brethren. Canaan is the older name of Palestine. The land of Canaan is part of the, you know, the promised land. Okay. Canaan is listed as the fourth son of Ham. Okay, so just, again, all these little things are going to are gonna ultimately all tie together. Okay, so this is in regard to the territories of Dan in the land of Israel. Why did Dan remain in ships? Uh, let's see here. Dan was of the last of the tribes to receive his portion, which was the smallest of the twelve. It had... It had a line of seacoast, which seems to have led the tribes to engage in some type of fishing commerce. Okay, so the Bible actually poses the question in Judges 5.17. Gilead abode beyond Jordan. Jordan. Why did Dan remain in ships? That's actually a question the Bible asks. Asher continued on the seashore and abode in his breaches. So again, that was Judges 5.17. Why did Dan remain in ships? Uh... Part of the tribe of Dan, unable to secure its inheritance, migrated north and captured Liash, renaming that city Dan. Now, that's we're going to prove that biblically, that that did happen. What we're trying to do right now is just kind of trace what did Dan do once it got into the promised land. We're trying to kind of trace, because at some point they got off into total apostasy. It's real obvious here, okay, because of all the reasons I've mentioned and many more that I'm going to be mentioning. So we kind of want to trace, okay, where where did they really go wrong here? I mean, you know, because we, we shouldn't think more highly than we ought of ourselves, the Bible talks about, to, to not think of more highly. I mean, we shouldn't be doing this like thinking, oh, look at Dan, they're, you know, this or that. You know, it's it should be a warning to us, too, to see where did they get off track, because we don't want to make the same mistakes as Dan did. Judges 18.29 says, And they called the name of the city Dan. After the name of Dan, their father, who was born unto Israel, how about the name of the city was Liash at the first? Okay, so this is the city that they named Dan, after Dan, their father. However, the name of the city was Liash at the first. We're going to be talking a lot more about this, okay? Um, this is a quote from Unger, page 191 of his book. It was the first, it was first a Canaanite Sanctuary. Remember, remember, Canaan is the one of Ham's son, his fourth son, that was cursed. Cursed be to Canaan. Okay, this is where we get the land of Canaan from, the name of the land of Canaan. Doesn't mean all the land, I believe, was necessarily cursed, but he did. This is the land, the, uh, the person that it was named after. It was first a Canaanite sanctuary for the worship of Baal. This was the land of the city of Liash that Dan captured. Okay, that they changed to Dan, the name Dan. But it was first a Canaanite sanctuary. What was it before Danite, Dan captured it? Well, it was first a Canaanite sanctuary for the worship of Baal. What was the king that ended up going to Greece? King Belius. Hmm. Belial? Belius? Baal? Huh. A lot of similarities there. So the city that Dan captured was first a Canaanite sanctuary for the worship of Baal, and perhaps was known as Baal Hermon. Like Mount Hermon, Baal Hermon. That was actually a place that's mentioned specifically in the Bible. Judges 3.3. 3. 
if we go right there, namely five lords of the Philistines and the Canaanites and the Sidoans and the Hivites that dwelt in the Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon under the entering of Haman. This Baal Hermon was known as Mount Hermon, but it's Baal Hermon. That's not exactly the type of, of uh, you know, thing you want connected with a with a place that that you're dwelling. You know, it was so much connected with the worship of Baal they just named it Baal Hermon. In other words, okay, uh, it's also mentioned in First Chronicles five twenty three. Now again, we're we're tracing the footsteps of Dan here which is really an interesting little study. I mean, it's a sad study, but it's a very interesting one at the same time. Okay, so 1 Chronicles 5.23. And the children of the half-tribe of Manasseh, remember we mentioned them? They're the ones that replaced Dan in Revelation. And the children of the half-tribe of Manasseh dwelt in the land. They increased from Bashan unto Baal Hermon and Sinar and unto Mount Hermon. Now, they were also there as well. The children of Manasseh. Okay, Dan, the Danites also migrated into this area. Okay, but it's funny. That's the very tribe that replaced Dan in Revelation 7. And yet they were in the same area. Kind of an interesting parallel there, isn't that? I mean, it's, and it's the only time it's ever happened in the Bible where they actually removed a tribe and then... They put this half-tribe Manasseh in there. So, uh, just interesting stuff here. But again, they refer to Baal Hermon and under Mount Hermon. Okay, there's a lot of interrelatedness in that particular area. And then this quote goes on to say, It was called by the Greeks Peneus because of its cavern. Okay, this is now they're talking about Baal Hermon. We're talking about Mount Hermon here. It was called by the Greeks Peneus because of its cavern, dedicated to the worship of the god of Pan. Okay, so now we've got this mountain that's connected with the worship of Baal, uh, who was, you know, basically the devil himself, and then also the god of Pan, also, uh, you know, essentially like the devil himself. Pan's like this fertility god figure. Just really twisted, perverted, sick stuff here. Okay, so, again, this is, this is some very uh, telling things we're looking at here. Peneus was also called, by the Jews, Dan. Or Mitzvah Dan. Or the Fort of Dan. And that's from the Encyclopedia of Judaica, on page 162, in regard to Peneus. Okay, so they also called it Baneus. Or Paneus. Meaning, with the god of uh, Pan. So, again, you, got, you see all these parallels between Dan, Pan... Baal, uh, Mount Hermon, a lot of stuff going on here. Let's go further. One of the main sources of the Jordan that rises in the grotto of one of the main sources of the Jordan rises in the grotto of Pan. That's how uh, the Catholic Encyclopedia regarding we're talking about Caesarea Philippi, which was what it was renamed as later. We'll talk about that more. Uh, but they called it the Grotto of Pan. It was. It wasn't like. It wasn't like there was uh, mystery over this area was associated with the worship of Pan and Baal. I guess is the point we're trying to make here. So let's go further. The Jordan River that weaves like a snake along the eastern border of the land of Israel, is named after the ancient tribe of Dan. Jordan means the going down of the Dan. Did you know that? I didn't know that. That's what the Jordan River is named after. 
Okay, so and it's funny. It says it weaves like a snake along the eastern border of the land. And how all this stuff with the snake and the adder is associated with Dan. And that the Jordan actually means the going down of the Dan. Interesting. In 4 BC, this area became the Tetrarchy of Herod's son, Philippus, who refounded Panaeus as Caesarea Philippi. Okay, he named it after himself. Okay, this area that was known as Panaeus before. And again, everything I'm reading to you is all referenced. Okay, so I'll try to make sure I have all the links to these respective articles up on the PDF for this teaching. And I'm kind of updating the PDF as we go. So if you don't see it at the very top of the PDF, if I list it up there, understand it's at the bottom because it's a progression. Going further, the Jewish encyclopedia regarding Caesarea Philippi says, From the 2nd century, the city was called Caesarea Panaeus. Okay, instead of Caesarea Philippi. They, they um, changed it to Caesarea Panaeus, as in the god of Pan. Okay. In 61 AD, Caesarea Philippi was na- renamed, at that point, uh, Neronius. And that was named after Nero. Okay. So again, these are just kind of like different things about the names and the name changes of this particular area. Um, another quote, Panaeus then again asserts itself with Caesarea... And finally, Caesarea disappears, and Panaeus takes permanent possession in the Arabic form of Banaeus. Now, this is from the 4th to the 13th century A.D. Okay, I should have been giving you these dates as we go along. Um, because in the... Let's see here. Oh, this is... Okay, so the 4th century B.C., um, this area became the Tetrarchy of Herod's son, Philip. Philippus, who refounded the Panaeus as Caesarea Philippi. That's 4th century B.C. And then we go to 61 to 68 A.D. 61 A.D., Caesarea Philippi was renamed Neronius, according to the Encyclopedia Judaica. Then we go to the 4th through the 13th century A.D., and Panaeus then again asserts itself with Caesarea. And finally, Caesarea disappears. Panaeus takes permanent possession in the Arabic form of Banaeus. So it was Panaeus to Banaeus, because the Arabs have no um, word for the letter P. So it went to Panaeus to Banaeus. Okay, and then under the simple name of Panaeus, it was the seat of the Greek bishopric of the period of the Great Councils and the Latin bishopric during the Crusades. That's in regard to Caesarea Philippi. Now I'm going to segue into this little article here, where we're going to give you a little more background on this, because I'm really wanting to, I don't know, just really document all this to a high degree here. Okay, so going further, uh, this is, um, we're kind of segueing into another article here. Um, the After the flood, Mount Hermon was still the center of Baal pan worship, which involved human sacrifice. Now, again, we talked a little bit about this more in the previous teachings, how Mount Hermon was actually associated with the fallen angels that fell during Genesis 6. Okay? And um, got into that more last week. We're going to get a little bit more into it this week. But after the flood, Mount Hermon was still the center of Baal pan worship, which involved human sacrifice. 
Now, if this is where the angels actually did fall, and I think there's a lot of evidence to prove that, you would it would be no surprise that the Baal and Pan worship was actually where it was centered at, which was at Mount Hermon, which would be considered what? A high place, which was always considered sacred and holy, more so by the people in their respective cults. Okay, so that really shouldn't be any surprise to us. It's also where Dan um, migrated into this area, and I don't think it's a it's a accident that they migrated into this area. If this is where the fallen angels did fall, or where they came down, and then they took themselves of the daughters of men and wise all that they chose, and then they bear them giants, according to Genesis six, if this is where they fell. This is a very cursed spot on the earth, okay? And it's no wonder that you have Baal and Pan worship, which are the two two of the most vilest deities on the planet. This is where their worship centers in. Because innocent blood defiles the land. And it appears as though there was a lot of human sacrifice that actually took place on Mount Hermon. And we're going to prove that. Okay, When you have innocent blood defiling the land, it attracts negative spirits. It attracts evil entities and fallen angels and these types of things. It almost It's like it gives them warrant to be there. It's kind of like, for example, if you have like a haunted house and you have these people with these haunted houses and they go in and there's these spirits supposedly in there that are um, evil spirits. What gives them the right to be there? Where there was probably some type of, of, of heinous act committed where blood was spilt, most likely, that gives these evil spirits a right to actually be there because innocent blood defiles the land or blood defiles the land. I mean... I, um, but innocent being, I believe, the kind that will really, uh, like like the Bible talks about where uh, God talked to Cain, and he says, that, you know, the, the blood of your innocent brother Abel cries out from the land, okay? So, I believe this is a big, uh, is a big reason where you have these phenomena like um, haunted houses or, or, or areas that are, that are actually inhabited by these evil spirits. Something took place there at a previous time that allowed this to be so. And I believe as Christians, we have authority over that. Okay? Um, but that's a whole other whole other study. I don't think that should be something that we're shying away from, uh, these types of things. I, I think that uh, we're going to need to understand the power that we actually have through the Lord Jesus Christ, His Word and His name. We go further. The town of Peneus is first mentioned by a Roman historian, Polavis, as the site of the battle in 200... B.C. between Egyptian Potolomid and the Syrian Greeks. It was a site of a Greek pagan temple dedicated to Pan. Hmm. A foot-goated god of music and goat herds. And it was a Greek pagan temple. Well, didn't we... Aren't we seeing a strong indicator that the Danites actually migrated to the Greece? Maybe they migrated... Maybe some of the Greeks migrated back into that area because they had heard about it from before, okay, because, the, you know, of, of all the things that I mentioned there. Now, there's a cave there on Mount Hermon known as the Cave of Pan. And it was considered the dwelling place of Pan. Well, I imagine the cave's still there, probably. Uh, the, then there's also the sign of the Grotto of Pan, the abode of the shepherd god. It was a pagan cult which began as early as the 3rd century before Christ. Ritual sacrifices, this is weird, 
Ritual sacrifices were cast into a natural abyss, reaching the underground waters at the back of the cave. Now, this is the grotto, and I believe this cave of Pan. Okay, there were actually there was a natural abyss reaching underground waters at the back of this cave. If its victims disappeared in the water, it was a sign that the god had accepted the offering. However, signs, if signs of blood appeared in a nearby spring, the sacrifice had been rejected. So it was this weird system they had set up in this in this grotto or cave of Pan that if they had a human sacrifice and they were and they put it into these underground waters at the back of the cave if the dis, if, if the victim disappeared the sacrifice had been accepted but if blood appeared in this nearby spring then the actual sacrifice had been rejected You know Satan will make you jump through tons of hoops if you give him the opportunity is the bottom line here so this is stuff that went on in this cave of Pan on Mount Hermon. Not exactly a good sign of being a holy place. So the cave of Pan, which dominates the foot of Mount Hermon at Banias, which was also, which was previously known as Panaeus, was known as the passageway to Hades. Remember, it's said in this cave that there was a um, a natural abyss reaching into the underground waters at the back of the cave. Natural abyss says that this cave, which uh, dominates the foot of Mount Hermon at Benaeus, or Peneus, was known as the passageway to Hades. Okay, so there's a verse in the Bible, I wasn't even going to get into this, but uh, if we go to Matthew 16, verse 13, and it says, when Jesus came under the coast of where? Caesarea Philippi. Well, that's the exact place we're talking about. That's what it was renamed as for a time. It was renamed Caesarea Philippi. Okay, and then remember, I gave all of the other names. It, 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 it was after that. I mean, at one point it was uh, Peneus, and then it was it was actually renamed Caesarea Philippi, and this was around um, four BC, and then at sixty one through sixty eight AD, Caesarea Philippi was renamed Neronius, and then it was and then it was renamed back back to Peneus or Banaeus from the 4th to the 13th century. So, we're talking about here in, in Matthew uh, 16, verse 13, when Jesus came under the coast of Caesarea Philippi, that's what we're talking about here, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that the Son of Man am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah and one of the prophets. But he saith unto him, unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered, said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And again, the, the reason they brought that up here is that they were saying essentially that if this truly was probably one of the most wicked spots on earth, if not the most wicked, where the actual fallen angels fell, to came to come and actually corrupt the seed of men so that the Messiah could never come. Because if they had killed all the humans, if they had corrupted all the humans, how could the Messiah ever come? Well, how could he be born if they had corrupted the seed of men? So, here we have the Messiah of the whole human race, the Lord Jesus Christ, coming and posing the question, but whom say ye that I am? And Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it was almost like, the reason they're bringing it up here is like within Caesarea Philippi, you have the place where a lot of unbelievable wickedness went on. 
Pan worship, Baal worship, probably the start and the inception of Pan and Baal worship, where most likely the, these, these fallen angels initially fell in Genesis 6. You have all of this occult connection uh, with that in um, the tribe of Dan, and Jesus Christ goes to this very area and poses the question, you know, but whom say ye that I am? And as though, you know, Peter's saying this, thou art the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of the living God, to proclaim it. I mean, also, this cave of Pan. What if it really is a passageway to Hades? I've heard there's places on the planet that actually are possible connections into hell. I don't know. I haven't been there. But it just kind of seems like an interesting parallel there. You know, that, that you've got this, this, uh, where Jesus says this, you know. I don't think it's an accident. Just, again, just another very little interesting point. So in countries where there are no mountains, pagans built artificial high mountains, uh, such as pyramids and the towers for occult rituals. These high places were frequently patterned after the three peaks of where? Mount Hermon. Three peaks. Did you know Mount Hermon had three peaks? Yep. It's got three peaks. So, in places where there was no mountains, the pagans built artificial mountains such as pyramids and towers for occult rituals. There were high places were frequently patterned after these three peaks of Mount Hermon. Well, you can think of, like, the three pyramids, you know, in Egypt and these types of things. From ancient times, the mountain was a place of worship where the god Hermon, perhaps called Baal Hermon, was venerated. Remember, we have the Bible referring to Mount Hermon as Baal Hermon in two different spots. Hmm. Kind of a weird thing. Why would you want to tie a totally wicked pagan deity to a mountain if there wasn't some connection? <laughs> so, so, from ancient times, the mountain was a place of worship where the god Hermon, perhaps Baal Hermon, was venerated. The oldest text concerning this cult is a treaty between the Hittites, the Amorite, the Azaru, which dates to 1350 B.C. As late as the 4th century, temples were built on the slopes of Hermon, whose ruins are still to be seen, among other places, on the highest summit of Hermon. Now, we're going to be looking at actual archaeology that has taken place on there, and we're going to see what they found. So, again, you're seeing that this is not just something that we're making up here. This is documented stuff. The, the sacred mountain was the high, and every every single thing I'm reading here is from a different quote from a different author. Okay, the sacred mountain was the highest point in the land, the center of the world, the gateway to revelation, to prophecy. Now, this is, I should say, occult revelation, occult prophecy, to heavenly gifts, and the human laws received from the gods. Why? Because if they believe their gods descended onto Mount Hermon, and they give them different names like Zeus and Apollo and these types of things, this is where we get our this is where we get our Greek legends and these types of things. I believe it comes from Genesis six. Okay, if the Danites took all of these legends, if they were actually there, which we've got total biblical proof that they were there in the Mount Hermon area, and they go to let's say Greece, and then they settle up into Ireland or wherever they go and start this Merovingian race, well, it's no wonder that they, would, that they wouldn't um, bring forth and retell the stories of these Greek legends and these things of that nature, of these false gods that came down from heaven 
procreated with the daughters of men, producing this race of giants, the men of old, the men of renown, okay, half human, half fallen angel. So again, this is a lot of interesting things to think about. Um, so, this is from an occult text. The sacred mountain was the highest point in the land, the center of the world, the gateway to revelation, uh, occult revelation, to prophecy, to heavenly gifts, and the human laws received from the gods. Where there was no mountain, the people built one. A mound, a pyramid, a ziggurat. So in other words, where the people didn't have a mountain, they built one. In commemoration of Mount Hermon and its three peaks. Pretty interesting stuff here. Pretty interesting stuff. At the ruined town of Ruke, on the northern slopes of Mount Hermon, are temple remains built into a church. A large medallion, five feet in diameter, with the head representing the sun god, is built into the wall. The sun god. Baal is associated with that too. So this is in one of the one of these uh, false churches. They got the sun god built into the wall. Now, also, get this. The Knights Templar were also most interested in Mount Hermon, otherwise known as Mount Sion. Not Zion, Sion in the Old Testament. Okay, now I'm going to be getting into that, the difference. But in the Old Testament, Mount Sion is referred to two times with an S. Okay, and it says in one of those two references, Mount Sion is Mount Hermon. Mount Zion is in Jerusalem, in the Old Testament. Now, when you go to the Greek, I might as well just say this now because it's going to be confusing if I don't. If you go to the Greek, okay, New Testament, they always refer to, I think it's Mount um, Sion is referred to like five times. When you cross over to the Greek, it's, it's, it's written as Mount Sion, okay, in the New Testament. But that is absolutely in reference to Jerusalem. In the Greek. And I'm going to be getting a little bit more into that, but um, it's important we understand the difference. Here's another quote When Godfrey liberated the Holy Sepulchre in 1099, he set up a base at a place called Mount Sion. Here the Crusaders are said to have fortified the area with towers and battlements. Now, this is Mount Hermon. Also based here is the Church of the Apostles. This article looks at Godfrey's presence here and why this specific site may have been important to him and the other crusader knights. Now, when we say the Church of the Apostles, don't I'm not saying that to say that it's a great church or something, okay? Um, but because there's a lot of, there's so much wickedness connected with this mountain. The article looks at Godfrey's presence here and why this specific site may have been important to him and the other crusader knights. The amazing identification of this site with an Essene settlement at the time of Jesus adds fuel to the suggestion that the Knights Templar may have been looking for specific knowledge once they had control of the holy places. Now, who are the Knights Templar? They're, they're like the modern-day forerunners of the modern-day Freemasons. They were the, essentially the ones that started, you know, the, the Freemasons. And they're connected in with, you know, the Merovingian bloodline and this whole holy blood, holy grail, knights of, you know, that protect this secret occult Gnostic knowledge. Now they get into the mix, with Mount Hermon in specific. The town, Caesarea Philippi, had a considerable history in Crusader times. Now when we say Caesarea Philippi, okay, we're talking about that same region of Mount Hermon. 
It had considerable history in Crusader times. In medieval times, the Crusaders had built a castle here in Caesarea Philippi on a mountain spur some 1,150 feet above the gushing fountain of Pan and called it the castle of Subadeth. Subabeth. Interesting how the Freemasons are now, or the or the um, the infancy of the Freemasons, how they're so concerned about this same place in the same mountain. Baron Rothschild purchased the land in the Golan Heights in 1892. Okay, Rothschild, highest Illuminati family that there is, been that way for hundreds of years at this point. Okay, he was the one that was integral in purchasing the Golan Heights in 1892. The Golan Heights is part of the Golan Heights. Northern Palestine is Mount Hermon. Okay, just so you know. So this is called the Golan Acquisition. After making acquisitions in various places west of the Jordan, he, uh, Baron, Baron Rothschild, turned his attention to buying the land east of the Jordan on the Golan. Toward the end of 1891, a certain... Ahmad Pasha made it known that some 120,000 dunham of prime land in the triangle formed by the Yamak and the Alanane rivers were up for sale at the bargain price of around 1.5 francs per dunham, provided that the sale was made in block, meaning provided that they bought the whole land as one piece, parcel. So in other words, you know, we'll give you a good deal if you buy it all, type of thing. There followed intensive discussions among various Jewish groups interested in the offer. Among Now, this is the very inception, this is the very start of, of what God allowed to happen in order to bring the Jews back into the Promised Land. Okay, this is the very start of that. They hadn't come back yet, but this was the start. And look, he used a wicked person to do it. I mean, one of the wickedest persons on the planet. Racha, who was also, I mean, they, they, um, they're the ones that adopted the insignia of the hexagram as, as their family shield, and that's why they called, um, their, their name is Rothschild, or Red Shield, uh, with a hexagram as their insignia. It's also, there's also a tie-in with, with Rothschild and, uh, this occult doctrine of Ruth's child. And again, we don't really have time to get into that, but there's, there's also a connection there. Um, in regard to their the way that they look at things occultically. So if we go further, um, it says, Baron agreed to cover the cost of the whole purchase, Baron Rothschild. Since Rothschild was always keen to preserve his anonymity, which is usually the case with these guys in the Illuminati, see, they'll have figureheads and puppets that do their dirty work for them. Okay, not to say this was dirty work in this regard, but I'm saying that many times, like the politicians and things that we, we tend to blame politicians, they're puppets on a string for the people that have the money. Okay, so just, just wanted to mention that. Uh, Barron was always keen to preserve his anonymity. He arranged for the deeds to be registered in the name Emile Frank, the representative of the Alliance of the Israelite in Beirut. When Baron Rothschild died in 1934... 80,000 dunham, and this is a unit of measurement of land, like we have the acre for uh, us, they were measuring this in dunham. Uh, 80,000 dunham on the Golan were owned by the Rothschild Company, which was called the PICA, or the Palestine Jewish Colonization Association. 
The land had been registered in the name of the PICA in 1929. The Syrian government um, tried in the 1940s to confiscate the land, but failed. In 1957, the the son of Baron Edmund, or Baron James de Rothschild, as one of the last acts of his life, transferred the deeds of the Jewish National Fund and from there to the land office of Israel. All of the deeds and other documents were transferred to Israel's foreign ministry of foreign affairs. So before this guy died, before this Rothschild died, he transferred essentially this land to Israel. Okay. The the archaeology of the Golan, Golan Heights, which is where Mount Hermon is, has, over the years, yielded a wealth of information of the Jewish ownership of the area, even since biblical days. In the Tanakh, the area is called the Golan, or the Bashan. More about that later. It was promised to Abraham, and later became part of the tribe of Manassas. Remember how I said Manassas was really the one that was officially given the land? Okay. Uh, It was given to Manassas by Moses in the division of land. Many events and battles took place in or around the Golan. Famous sites, including the fortress of Gamala, the Jewish town of Kazrin, were situated on the Golan. Ruins of some 25 synagogues built during the centuries after the destruction of the temple have been excavated. Some of them with magnificent mosaic inscriptions testifying of the uninterrupted Jewish presence of the Golan during the Middle Ages. In modern times, the Turkish government settled some Russians there, since no one lived had lived on the Golan for centuries. It is surprising... Now, again, I'm reading from a, a quote from a, a particular uh, publication here. It is, it is surprising that Israel has never brought up the legal Jewish rights to the Golan and instead has wrangled for years with the current Syrian government for the return of the Golan to Syria. While in reality, the Jews have had title to it for over a hundred years. Why they did that, I don't know. Baron... Edmund de Rothschild has left lasting marks on the maps of the land of Israel. Without him, no state of Israel would be possible. Well, without the Lord Jesus Christ, no state of Israel. He used a wicked person in order to accomplish this. Okay, but he is integrally related, as are the Roth, as are the Rockefellers, with Israel, with these gigantic land acquisitions of Israel with the city of Jerusalem, with a lot of the archaeology that goes on, particularly the Rockefellers, in these areas. So, in fact, even long before the state was established in 1948, the entire colonization of the land had depended on Baron Rothschild's foresight, funding, and Jewish convictions. He's the head family of the Illuminati, the Rothschilds. So, just tells you something there. Uh, the Six-Day War not only gave Israel control of Jerusalem, but also the Mount Hermon area, or the Golan Heights. So it was, it was during the Six-Day War, you know, they had possession. Uh, from June 5, 1967, Israel gained the hold on the strategic Golan Heights. The war, which ended in June 10th, is known as the Six-Day War. These are just different quotes, just to tie things in a little bit for you. Since 1967, but mainly during the last 10 years, major excavations at Banaeus, or Banas, which was Panaeus, remember, this is the Mount Hermon area, 
Major excavations focused upon two areas. The remains of the sanctuary complex to the god of Pan and the center of the city the later continues to the present. So in other words, they're still excavating. Who knows what they found up there? Who knows? I really believe this is one of the most wicked spots on earth. And they're, they're admitting here, even to this day, that, the, that this, um, this god of Pan and Baal and these types of things were absolutely, totally associated with this area. So very, very interesting stuff we're looking at here. Uh, if we go further here, the Amorites, <clears throat> this is from Judges 134, interesting verse. The Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountain, for they would not suffer them to come down to the valley. The Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountain? Huh, sounds like they forced them into Mount Hermon. Now, maybe that was one of the reasons that they ended up leaving and maybe migrating to Greece. Because they were, uh, maybe God was bringing enemies to them, hedging their way up with thorns, because they were doing wickedness. Obviously, they were. And maybe that was one of the reasons they migrated out of there. I mean, because uh, God could easily do that. The name Hermon represents Ham. Now, this is from Encyclopedia Britannica, uh, regarding the subject of Mount Hermon, page 876. It says, the name Hermon represents Ham. Not ham like the pig, but ham. Uh, Herman means forbidden place. Forbidden place. That's what Herman actually means. Okay? And ham was actually, remember, ham was the one that, was, although he wasn't cursed directly, his son Canaan was cursed by Noah, and that land is also known as the land of Canaan, or part of it. Interesting parallels here. Uh, this is another uh, quote, and it says, the interpretation of Hermon is anathema. That's another interpretation of Hermon, anathema. Whoa. That's not good. <laughs> Why does that surprise, I mean, it really shouldn't surprise us here. We've just got a lot of interesting parallels here. Here's a quote from a guy named Kadabish page 1289 of his book, and it says, Hermes' name is Greek. The later Greek-speaking peoples did not know the name of the pre-Hellenic inhabitants had given to the god of these stone heaps, and the name was undoubtedly withheld from them, therefore they could only refer to him as Hermes, from their word for a stone heap. Uh, now, most likely, when we see Hermes, the god of Hermes, this is a derivative of Hermon. Okay, and again, the name Hermon means forbidden place. Hermon is also in interpreted as the word anathema. Also associated with the Greek, remember, they were saying this King Belaeus, Belanus, Belial, Baal, migrated to Greece. This became the Danite race, and then or the Danines, which turned into the Spartans, which had long hair, and viewed their long hair as their strength, just like Samson, who was also a Danite. Interesting parallels here. If you start thinking about this, I mean, I'm, I'm, I know I'm reiterating a lot, but it's kind of necessary in order to really grasp this teaching. It's amazing. So, Hermes is Greek. Now, if King Belias brought this false religion over to Greece, and they turned into the Spartans, 
Well, it, was no, it would be no wonder that they worship the god of Hermes, as in Mount Hermon. Um, so, interesting points here. Here's from the New Catholic Encyclopedia regarding Mount Hermon. Page 1078, it says, On one of its three secondary peaks, there are ruins of a circular wall within which lies a heap of hewn stone, said to be remnants of a Syrian altar, possibly in honor of Baal. Okay, this is on one of the three secondary peaks of Mount Hermon. Now remember, from the quote we just read before that, Hermes' name is Greek. The later Greek-speaking peoples did not know the name that the pre-Hellenic inhabitants had given to the god of these stone heaps. The pre-Hellenic uh, inhabitants were probably the tribe of Dan that had come there. And then it says, given to the god of these stone heaps. So in other words, this is where they got this tradition of, of welling up these stone heaps from the, three, from the three peaks of Mount Hermon. It, it got into the whole false religious system. In other words, okay, uh, this is another quote. Thoth Hermes was the biblical ham, deriving from the word herma, which relates to pile of stones. You see how this ties together? It's just pretty amazing. Uh, and then um, <clears throat> the, the Bible says in Genesis 6, 1 and 2, and it came to pass, when men began to multiply in the face of the earth, and the daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives all that they chose. We've kind of read that, but it's just a good one to reiterate. Hittite and biblical records support the use of Hermon as a dwelling place of the gods. Ritual centers were located at the foot of Mount Hermon. Baal, they, they referred to that also as Baal Gad, in the valley of Lebanon under Mount Hermon according to Joshua 11.17, and also was referred to as Baal Hermon in 1 Chronicles 5.23 and one other place too. Okay, so that's just an interesting thing here. Uh, another quote from, this is from um, Enoch 6, 1 through 5. Now remember, Enoch is quoted, well, we're going to be talking about that a little bit later, so I'll, I'll just save that. Um, and the angels of the children of heaven saw them and desired them handsome and beautiful daughters, and they descended onto, into Ardos, which is the summit of Hermon. Okay, that's from the book of Enoch. And again, we're going to be getting a little more into that later. Um, I'm not saying it's canon of scripture. I'm not saying it's the Holy Bible. I'm just using it as a commentary. Okay. So the angels, the children of heaven, saw them and desired them, these handsome and beautiful daughters. And they descended onto Ardos, which is the summit of Hermon. It's where the book of Enoch says they actually came down and actually fell. Okay. They went from being good watchers to fallen angels. Now remember, wickedness done defiles the land, leading pagan nations to being attracted to these areas. See, people, I've, I've heard this many times, I know I mentioned this earlier a little bit, but uh, there's been many, many instances where like, somebody has like, lived in a house, and let's say the house is haunted or something, and they, they put the house up for sale and they flee like, you know. Well, in many instances, along will come some occultist or some witch or some warlock, and they'll buy the house. You know why they buy the house? Because they're attracted to it, because they like, quote, the vibes. They're attracted to evil. Okay, Those same devils and demons many times may not, may not mess with a witch or a warlock because they're in, they're in agreement with them. Okay, I've heard this account many, many times. So, um, 
when you have a mountain that was probably associated with all manner of wickedness, a lot of innocent blood. We know human sacrifice took place in the in the um, the cave of Pan. These types of things. They're admitting this. It's no wonder that high-level occultists and pagan societies were actually attracted to this mountain, not to only maybe live around it, but to also worship there and use it as one of their highest worship spots on the planet because this, this mountain had been defiled, essentially. So, from ancient times, the mountain was a place of worship where the god Hermon, perhaps known as Baal Hermon, or we could also say Baal or Hermes, was venerated. That's from the Encyclopedia Dictionary of the Bible. I mean, this is these aren't like radical sources I'm quoting here. These are, you know, just a matter-of-fact thing about this particular place. Here's a quote from a guy named Freeman, Friedman, page 159 of his book, Mount Hermon. More than 20 temples have been surveyed on Mount Hermon and its environs. This is an unprecedented number in comparison with other regions of the Phoenician coast. 20 temples! It would be like, you know, the pagans' Rome. You know, it, was, it would be like the pagan version of Rome, like where the Pope lives or whatever. That was their, that was their main place they wanted to migrate to and visit. Okay, so again, just very, very uh, interesting stuff here. Uh, I am going to go ahead and stop here because we're going to be getting a little further. And then I'll go to the third part next.